0: I want to say good morning to uh, our Cedar Lake campus and our HP campus, and especially uh, our, uh, our HOPO, as we sometimes will call it, campus. We look forward to feasting with you tonight. I look forward to being there and uh, enjoying a meal and prayer time with you. We will, uh, we will get there tonight. Our text today is Ecclesiastes 2, 1 through 11, the same text that we had last weekend. I'd like to begin by simply reading it. Ecclesiastes 2, verses 1 through 11. I said in my heart, Come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. I said of laughter, It is mad, and of pleasure, what use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many other concubines, the delight of the children of men. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me, and whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done, and the toil I had expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. We worked our way through this passage last weekend in a, in a more ex- expositional way. And uh, that message is available at our media page at Bethelweb.org. Today, I want to spend time in application, okay? This is more of an application message, and uh, I'm not going to repeat everything from last week, but I'd like to just summarize what we see Solomon doing here. Solomon is on a search. Solomon is on a quest. He is searching for meaning in life. And he is doing it not as a saint, but as a sinner, as a man post-fall, a man living in this world, trying to derive a sense of meaning and purpose here from the pleasures that this world has to offer. And uh, something in his heart told him that he ought to do this. There was an ache, there was a, a longing something told him that his life ought to matter somehow ought to have some significance but what do you get significance from only in this world only material things so we find here solomon he engages in a series of experiments okay experiments where He wants to see if anything that is pleasurable in this world could meet that ache and satisfy the longing of his heart. And so we have here a list of things that he says, I tried, and in this list it includes laughter, alcohol, uh, great buildings and accomplishments, great wealth, artistic uh, experiences of music and beauty, and sexual pleasure on a staggering scale. Does that list sound familiar, by the way? Have we really changed all that much in the things that people run after? Sort of that drug, sex, rock and roll, party hardy. This is where life's all out. I'm going to try to find meaning and significance uh, living for the weekend and the pleasures that it might um, allow. This is unchecked hedonism. And, you know, he was like a gazillionaire. He had enough money to circumcise. Cert- search, by do whatever he wanted to do, and he gave himself to it with great gusto. And he retains here, it says, his discernment as he did it. So he's experiencing the pleasure, and as he's experiencing the pleasure, he's asking himself, how do I feel now? Is this pleasure making me, am I happy now? Is the longing in my heart satisfied now? Even as he's experiencing the pleasure. And in spite of legendary wealth, legendary women, legendary accomplishment, Solomon concludes all of his experience with pleasure, and he says, it is all vanity. That word, vapor. You think it's something, a vapor, and then you try to get it, and you realize that what you thought was something is actually nothing at all. He says, all of that stuff, that's what it's like. There's nothing to it. It's just vapor. And I wonder, friend, today, if maybe this kind of echoes a little bit in your life story. If you think about what you've really been spending your, your, your time, your energy, your thoughts, what you've really been pursuing in your life, you've been maybe thinking, if only I had this or if only I experienced that, then I'll actually be happy because right now I'm discontented with my life. I need this in my life, then I'll be happy. Or worse yet, maybe you had something like that and you actually got it. And after getting it, you realize that something didn't make you happy. And now you have despair on the other side, and you're wondering, is this all that life's all about? Now, one of the benefits of having a wife is that you get a little debrief after the sermon. And last week, I was debriefing with Jennifer, and she thought that maybe I had taught last week where you possibly could say, well, the Bible or God is sort of down on pleasure, when in reality, it is the opposite of that. Who created pleasure in the first place? Who made all these things in the first place? The Bible is very pro-pleasure and pro-things on this list, but it never is that apart from God. It never deifies these things. never says, this is what you ought to live for. Actually, if you look ahead just quickly to verse 24, he says this, there's nothing better for a person than he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. So the Bible is very pro-pleasure, but it's never pro-pleasure without God. And we're going to hit on how do we then enjoy the things in the world without worshiping them? This is the week after Easter, a sermon entitled, I've already picked it, Life's Too Short to Drink Bad Coffee. I hope that you'll come to that. That's where we're going that weekend. Okay. so where is real meaning found? Where is it? And our eyes, uh, as I've said, as you read Ecclesiastes, you've got to have three eyes. You've got to have one eye that's looking at the fall in Genesis 3, because that's where life apart from God begins, and that emptiness in the human heart begins. Then you've got to have one eye in Ecclesiastes as you read the text, but you have to constantly have one eye forward to Jesus and to the cross, and to the answer to the longing that's found in him. And that's where I want to sit this week with this message, is if pleasure apart from God is not where it's at, then in what way can we legitimately say that Jesus is better than the pleasures or the lists that, that he has here. How is Jesus better than laughter and alcohol and sex and all the other things that are listed here? That's where we're going today. And so I want to build this case, and you're going to see a comparison list on the screens here as we compare earthly pleasure and joy or pleasure that comes from knowing Christ. So the first thing to realize, and this is, Really what Solomon's so despairing about here is that earthly pleasure is always fleeting. It is always fleeting. But the joy that we have and the satisfaction that we have with Jesus is an eternal joy. Solomon experiences all these things and you know what he feels like on the other side of it? The same way we feel uh, about these things on the other side of it. And the word he uses again, it's vapor, it's futility. What is he looking for? He's looking for something to satisfy that ache and that longing in his heart, trying to derive meaning from this world. The things of this world, they they provide a kind of satisfaction, don't they? I mean, there is a buzz that you get. Look at this list. There's, There's buzz to be had here. There's a kind of happiness that we can have in the things of this world. That feeling you have when you buy a new car or you get married or you uh, have a million dollars in the bank, there's a certain joy that we derive from these things. But we have to realize that having Jesus by faith, and that's what I mean by Jesus here is not just him historically, but him personally by faith. Having Jesus by faith provides us a contentment and a satisfaction that does not diminish Okay? The world lives under what's called the law of diminishing returns, and it's not so much a law as it is a reality, okay? The things in this world, when you achieve them or you get them, provide a kind of happiness. But it doesn't matter what it is, what the experience is, the next time that you experience it, it feels different than the first time. Let me illustrate. If you ever buy a new car, or get a new car. It doesn't have to be a brand new car, but it's a new car to you, okay? You're super excited about it, right? You get that new car. It's got the new car smell. The first time you drive it, it's like magical, isn't it? You drive it home. You hope the neighbors are seeing you in your new car. You know, you get home, and it's only a mile from the dealership, but you wash it, right? Right away. And every day after that, for at least A month or so, you're washing that new car, vacuuming it out, taking care of it, right? It feels so great the first time you drive it to work or wherever you're going, that first car, new car, first drive experience. The second time you drive that car, it's really, really great. And the third time you drive that car, it's cool. But the thousandth time you drive that car, you don't even think about it, do you? That's the law of diminishing returns. Or have you ever been to a restaurant, okay? And for whatever reason, you go to this restaurant and, you know, it's the guest chef or cook or whatever, somehow magically the flame, the meat, the molecular level, savory, tasty things all happen to be just exactly perfect. You eat that meal and you are like, oh, this is fantastic, right? And you just love it. You tweet about it. You Facebook post about it. This is an amazing new restaurant. You tell all your friends about it. You can't wait to go back and to order the same thing. You go back, you order the same thing. It can be done exactly the same way, and that tastes so good, but it doesn't taste like the first time, and the fourth time, and the tenth time, and the twentieth time. You always can maybe sort of enjoy it, but it doesn't have the same oomph that it did the first time. That's the law of diminishing returns. And Ecclesiastes describes this in a very sobering way. If you look ahead to chapter 12, we're not going to go there, but you go to chapter 12, the writer talks about the experience, not of the young man experiencing everything for the first time, but of the old man. The old man who now can't sleep very well, and he wakes up at the sound of the crickets. Right? And he can't taste food like he used to. And the house is sort of falling down. It's a man in decay. It's a man in decline. And the point is this, that no matter what you have in life, either it changes or you change. Did you look in the mirror this morning? We are all in decline, aren't we? Nobody wants to amen that, right? The young people are like, no, I'm getting bigger and stronger. Just wait, just wait. You go like this, and then you go like that. Now, last week and I didn't really plan on this, but I got to the end of the message, and um, I was reminded as I was preaching about C.S. Lewis, who addressed a um, question that is a little delicate, um, but it's a really great quote, and I said, you know, come back next week, and I'm going to talk about it, because he addresses the whole matter of sexual pleasure, and the question that we have sometimes is, well, what about that pleasure in eternity? Because Jesus says there's no marriage in eternity, and so we can kind of think that then there's no sexuality in eternity. And that's kind of like a question, along with maybe your favorite food or golf course or whatever, like what, how can it be heaven if maybe that's not a part of it? So, I love C.S. Lewis. He's great on things like this. Let me read this quote, and this is one of these quotes that maybe you get it a little better the second or third time. So, this is the opposite of the law of diminishing returns in a sense, but it's just because he writes, uh, I don't know, very uh, insightfully. Here's what he says. The letter and spirit of Scripture and of all Christianity forbid us to suppose that life in the new creation will be a sexual life. And this reduces our imagination to the withering alternative either of bodies which are hardly recognizable as human bodies at all, in other words, we lose all sexuality, or of a perpetual sexual fast. As regards the fast, I think our present outlook might be like that of a small boy on being told that the sexual act was the highest bodily pleasure should immediately ask whether you ate chocolates at the same time. On receiving the answer no, he might regard absence of chocolates as the chief characteristic of sexuality. In vain would you tell him that the reason why lovers in their carnal raptures don't bother about chocolates is that they have something better to think of. The boy knows chocolate. He does not know the positive thing that excludes it. Now he draws the analogy. We are in the same position. We know the sexual life. Okay, for us, those, that's the chocolate. We do not know, except in glimpses, the other thing which in heaven will leave no room for it. Hence, where fullness awaits us, we anticipate sexual fasting. In denying that sexual, the, that sexual life, as we now understand it, makes any part of the final beatitude, it is not, of course, necessary to suppose that the distinction of sexes will disappear. What is no longer needed for biological purposes may be expected to survive for splendor. Sexuality is the instrument both of virginity and of conjugal virtue. Neither men nor women will be asked to throw away weapons they have used victoriously. It is the beaten and the fugitives who throw throw away their swords. The conquerors sheath theirs and retain them. Should I read that again? I don't have time, okay? But here's what Lewis is saying. He's dancing around a delicate subject here, and he does it with typical brilliance. The boy could hear that there is no chocolate during marital intimacy and think that sounds terrible because nothing can be enjoyed without chocolate, right? And so he thinks that the main thing about it is that there is no chocolate, How can I enjoy anything without chocolate? How could life be meaningful without chocolate? What he doesn't realize is that there is a greater pleasure that removes the need for the lesser. And here we are in the same situation. All we know is the present pleasure. We don't know that much about what the eternal pleasure and experience will be. We have little glimpses, okay, we have little glimpses of this with the joy that we have in Jesus. To know Jesus is to know joy. This is Peter says, though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. We know that. And that joy is imperfect. And we we have times in the desert, like the song that we sang, and we're human and we see through a glass darkly. So it is an imperfect experience of joy for sure, but we have some. And we have the promise of future joy, Psalm 1611. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Okay, so to be a Christian now is to know joy imperfectly, but to hold to the promise that there is a coming joy that will be far greater than anything I've experienced now. And the Bible says that when we die or when Jesus comes, We are, uh, when we're resurrected, we receive a glorified body. And that body has a capacity for joy and gladness and fullness far greater than anything we've experienced in this life. And when we die, we step into that fullness of joy, Psalm 1611. And all of a sudden now, we are experiencing a kind of pleasure that now makes any pleasure that we experience in this world not so important. And just as a side note to think, the pleasure that we will have forever all the time will be of such intensity and joy and gladness that even marital sexual intimacy will be no big deal that it's not a part of it. And I'm saying that's pretty good. Hard for a boy to understand happiness without chocolate. It's a great analogy. So, fleeting pleasures here, eternal joy and happiness that doesn't end with Jesus. Secondly, what are earthly pleasures uh, experienced like here? I'm calling it an ominous happiness that we have. But with Jesus, there is joy even in pain and even in suffering. There looms over the earthly pleasure a cloud. It doesn't matter what it is. There's a, there's a cloud over it. You know that whatever you are experiencing, it's going to end. There's an expiration date on earthly pleasures and joy. So that you go... You know, you go on vacation, or you go to the concert, or you go to that great moment as the sun is setting, and you're like, this is fantastic, it's so beautiful. It doesn't matter what it is, you know that as you are experiencing, it is going to end. And so there's this ominous, it's an ominous happiness. It's like, yay, but it's not going to last. Students going on spring break, remember Pastor Steve said that, it's Monday, but Friday's coming. All right. And all week you're like, yay, oh no. This isn't going to last. Nothing does in this world. But with Jesus, there is a granite joy. There is a joy that, as the preacher said, the world didn't give and the world can't take away. It's imperfectly experienced. But it's the kind of joy that we have in the desert, in the trial and in the pain. And maybe you're here today, Christian, and you're experiencing a real hardship, and you're looking for, you know, where do I find happiness and such? It's in the same place. It's in, it's in Jesus, and he's not going anywhere, and his promises are not, are, they endure, He is the immutable god he is the same yesterday today and forever and the joy that we have in him is not circumstantial it's not subject to change it's grounded in his character his work on the cross and his promises to be for us all that we need in this life and in the life to come and that is real joy next earthly pleasures you live for earthly pleasures you live in ecclesiastes 2 The worst moment of your life is one second before you die. But you have joy in Jesus and contentment in him. That last second is the happiest moment of your life, rightly considered. And every second after that is joy and contentment. Think about this with me for a second. If you're an unbeliever, if you're like living Ecclesiastes 2, if you're the gazillionaire, the playboy, you're buying, you're doing, you're accomplishing, what is death? Death is the loss of everything you've lived for. All that you've sought to accomplish, all of it, when you die, you give it up. There is no more experiencing of that fame or that power or that uh, uh, success. It's all poof. It's all gone. It is the loss of all beauty, the loss of all experience of gladness and joy. But for the Christian... That one second before you die, rightly understood, is the greatest moment of your life. Why? Because one second before I die, I know that I am about to experience the greatest pleasure I've ever known in my life. I'm about to step into the presence of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And we know from the Bible that wealth in eternity has nothing to do with the money that you had in this life. And nothing to do with how famous you were in this life, or what you built, or who you were, and all of that. Wealth in eternity is who you know, and more importantly, who knows you. And to step into eternity and to see the majesty of that space and that face of God, and for him to say your name will be the happiest thing you've ever experienced in your life. Okay. And that experience then it's just it's the beginning of it. It's not the end. Okay? Pleasure for the unbeliever, death is the end of pleasure. Pleasure for the Christian in this life and greatly in the next life. On and on time without end. And that is why Paul says in Philippians 1:21, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Who says that? Death is gain to me. A Christian says that. Because in death I get what I've wanted more than anything else, which is Christ. To be with him. To sense his love and the fullness of his grace to me. To be there and to see him. And for that beatific vision, as the theologians call it, For that experience with a glorified heart and body now to fill me with a tingling, joyful, spiritual, real happiness and gladness trumps anything that this world has to offer. And it doesn't end. It doesn't end. What would you trade that for? You wouldn't trade it for all the wealth in the world. All the fame of this world all the temporary buzz of every alcohol or drug you could buy. You wouldn't trade that for anything. So for the Christian, death means more pleasure, not less. And finally, I'm calling it salt water, living water. Salt water, living water. If you ever watched like a survival show where the plane goes down and they're on the raft or like, you know, Three years or something that it never lasts that long but however long it is it's not very long when they're on the raft floating in the ocean that they get thirsty and they need to drink something and it's one of these ironic poignant moments here you have guys they are dying of thirst in an ocean of water but what do they know they know that if they drink the water thinking it's going to satisfy them it's not going to work they're going to be even more thirsty, because that's what salt water is like. You drink it, and then you want and need more and more and more. And that's what this world is like, isn't it? All the things of this world, no matter what you live for, think about, you always find yourself needing more and more and more to satisfy that buzz need in your heart. But Jesus is the opposite He satisfies our thirst by quenching it with the glory of forgiveness of sins and new life in Him and the gift of eternal life forever. That's what satisfies the longings of our heart. And Ecclesiastes is, is basically it's this. It is a sinner seeking a spiritual answer with material things that never satisfy. And the gospel is a a christological answer to the spiritual longings of the heart and that is the gospel and that's what jesus said okay he satisfies us by quenching it he says to the woman at the well everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again but whoever drinks of the water that i will give him will never be thirsty again the water that i will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life and that's his point ecclesiastes 2 you're always thirsty Drink me, and that means believe in me, receive me, and that soul longing is satisfied. Living water, living water. Now, what does that look like practically? And I don't often do this, but today I want to have a kind of guest speaker here with us. I'm going to play a video, and here we are, March Madness. Everybody's thinking basketball, talking basketball. I have a, a video here, that I, and I want you to listen to the testimony of Pistol Pete Maravich. The basketball guys know here, and girls, know that one of the greatest basketball players who ever lived, you you watch these college games now and the winning team, you know, it's 55 to 45 or something like that. Maravich averaged like 45 points a game his whole college career. Amazing, amazing basketball player. But God did a work in his life and it just flows right out of Ecclesiastes 2. So listen to the words of Pete Maravich. He's speaking at a Billy Graham crusade in 1987. So the video quality isn't the greatest, but you'll get it, okay? Roll the tape.
1: It's not always like that because when I was seven years old, my dad sat me down and he said, Pete, if you'll listen to me, you might be able to get a scholarship in basketball because we can't pay your way. And maybe you not only get a scholarship, but maybe you'll go to the pro level and you'll play on a team that wins a world championship and you'll make a million dollars playing basketball and they'll give you a big diamond ring, and they'll have your name on it, and say world champions. And to a seven-year-old, my eyes lit up, and I said, Dad, that's what I want. He said, if you'll let me teach you, you just commit, you dedicate your life to basketball, and that's all you have to do. And you'll live happily the rest of your lives. And that's what I did. I became a human basketball. I was a basketball android. I believed in God when I was a young boy, but the God I believed in was a heavenly Santa Claus, someone who would take care of my needs. He would get me things, or when I was in trouble, he would get me out of it. I knew of no personal relationship, nor did I care, because my commitment was to basketball, one of the first idols and gods in my life. When I was 14 and a half years old, a friend of mine came to me, and I grew up in Clemson, South Carolina, and said, have you ever had a beer, Pete? And I said, no, I haven't. I don't care to have one, because my dad said, if I ever drank one, he would shoot me. And I said, I don't want to die just yet, because I've got to play pro basketball. He said and he kept on and kept on and finally through what they call peer pressure today i said okay i remember going on the steps of the methodist church at 9 p.m on a sunday night and i remember popping open that can i remember smelling it and he said doesn't it smell good i said yes it does and i remember taking that first sip and i'm here to tell you tonight all you young people that are here and anybody else who has any kind of a drug problem that first sip nearly destroyed my life and the only reason i'm standing here tonight is because of the grace and mercy of god I would not be here tonight because he overruled in my life. But I do know this, that peer pressure is simply a choice. That's all it was in my life. It's a choice. There was never a gun placed next to the alcohol. Never in my whole life it started as a toehold and came out of the stronghold. When I was 19 years old, I went out to the Campus Crusade for Christ to put on a showtime clinic. I didn't know anything else just to go out there and do my clinic. I'd done it all around the world, my dad and I. I took a friend with me, and for three days I heard who Jesus Christ was. And for three days, I rejected him. On the third night, Mr. Bill Bright, founder of Campus Crusade, gave a message like Mr. Graham gives. And many young people came forward. And my friend, who was just like me, we partied all the way out and we had a good time. We had all the pleasure we wanted. He went forward with tears in his eyes. and I said, what's wrong with you? You can't follow this. I've seen all the hypocrites. I don't want any part of this because I had my goals set. And I had to attain my goals. I didn't have time for Christ. And I went back out in the wilderness. I went back out there for 16 years. And I did everything I did in college. I became All-American. And I got all the trophies and all the awards was on all the magazine covers. I have a trophy six foot five and a quarter inches tall, the same height as I am. It's still in the attic from 15 years ago collecting dust because that's what trophies do. They collect dust. I signed the largest contract in the history of sports in 1970. I I went to my dad, I said, Dad, I hope you're proud, because my dad was always my hero. I said, I've got it, I've signed a million dollar contract. I've made it to the pros. Now all I got left is the ring. And when I get the ring, I'll be able to sit by the pool, twinkle my toes in the water, and sit back with my drink and live happily ever after, that's what I thought. But it just didn't turn out that way. In 1980, I quit basketball, I was despondent. I didn't know what to do. It was out of bitterness, and I was immature. And I became a recluse in my house in Metairie, Louisiana. And I tried to be father of the year. I said, now I'll throw all of my energies into my son. That's where I'll get my joy. That's where I'll get my peace. But it didn't work out. It didn't last. And for two years, I divorced myself from basketball, stayed in the house, used to contemplate suicide, taking my Porsche out, driving 140 miles an hour across the bridge and going off. I'm glad I never did that. But in 1982, I went to bed one night, it was late night, and I was watching television. It was like any other night, and I just went to bed. And as I laid in the bed, things started coming up in my mind, and I could not sleep. And the things that were coming up in my mind, I knew what they were. It was called sin. I knew the difference between right and wrong, and I always had a heavy conscience whenever I did something morally wrong. It was sin that came, and it would not leave me alone. Everything I'd ever done, all my rebellion against God, all my rebellion against my parents, the people I loved, the people I hated, I hated people. I had bitterness against people. It was driving me crazy. I couldn't get it out of my mind. I remember crying out in my spirit. I said, oh God, you're going to have to save me. I can't take this life anymore. I've had it with what they say makes you happy. I've had it with what they say make, will make your life just so, so good. And I remember at that point, with tears in my eyes, the Lord spoke to me. He said, be strong and lift thine own heart. I'll never forget it. I'll never deny it. It reverberated through my room. I was in shock. I sat up in my bed. I was not asleep. I woke my wife up. She was in a deep sleep. I said, Jackie, did you hear that? Did you hear what God said to me? Well, Jackie just didn't hear. She said, I didn't hear anything, Pete, and laid her head back down. But I remember rolling off the bed, and I I said, God, I know you're there, and I want my life to change. And I remember back to when I was 19, when I was at that campus crusade, and I said, come into my life. Forgive my sin. Change me like you want me to. Since that day, my life has changed so dramatically. It's been almost four and a half years. I've never known the joy I have tonight. I know what faith is. Faith is a testing. Faith is a preparation ground. That's why we are here. But joy is trusting. That's what I found out. That's what it's all about. I want you, all of you to know this tonight about Peter Maravich. You may never have heard of me. It makes no difference. I'm just one person on this earth. Saved by the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ. And I want you to know this, that the change that came into my life was Jesus Christ. It was not winning. I won all my life. I want every trophy and award and everything you can think of. But every time I won something, I wanted something more. I had to win again. It wasn't money, because money will buy you everything but happiness. It'll pay your fare to every place but heaven. Material things, I've driven everything some of you strive for, from Rolls Royces to BMWs to Mercedes to Porsches. It wasn't religion. Because in the name of religion, Jesus Christ was placed upon that cross. And the purest thing about Christianity is the fact that it's your choice. You can't work, you can't earn. I knew that. And I understood it now. And I want you to know this. The last thing I'd like to say is this. Next week I'll be inducted into the Hall of Fame. I'll get that big ring. In fact, it's a bigger ring than I would have got for the championship. But I'll tell you something about all the wars. They all pale to the glory of Christ and what he's done in my life. It's amazing what he has done in my life. I wouldn't trade my position. I wouldn't trade my position in Christ for a thousand NBA championships, for a thousand Hall of Fame rings, or for a hundred billion dollars. There's nothing like the joy of Jesus Christ in your life. Thank you very much.
0: Now, did that sound familiar? Is that not Ecclesiastes too? You know what makes this especially poignant? Just some months after giving this testimony, Pete Maravich died of a heart attack age 40. I wonder, friend, today if you heard your own life story in Pistol Pete. I wonder if you hear it in the words of Solomon. And I wonder if what they're urging might be the answer that you're looking for in your life. Did you hear what he said? I had this, I had this, I had this, I had this, I had this. I was empty. But then I met Jesus and my life changed. And I wouldn't cha- trade all of that stuff for what I have in Jesus for anything. And that can be your story as well. If you will put your faith and your trust in Christ, just like Pete Maravich did, just like so many of us have done, I've done in my own life, to trust in Christ and to believe Him to actually be the Savior of the world, not a fairy tale, not a pretend, but a real person who was the Son of God and died on the cross for your sins and mine to believe in him, and to be saved. You can know that today, and I would urge you to put your faith and your trust in him.